Welcome to Mothering Earth, your source for sustainable living news. I'm Salwa Khan. Water is possibly the most precious resource on Earth. Humans, other animals, and plants all need water in order to live and thrive. In this program, we'll be hearing from several experts on ways in which we can conserve water in our gardens and on our land. For example, there are simple, practical things we can do in order to grow a vegetable garden without using a lot of water. We'll start with what are called wicking gardens, which not only save water, but will also save you lots of time. My first guest is Dr. Robert Mace, Executive Director of the Meadows Center for Water and the Environment. He is a big fan of the wicking garden, and he's here to explain just what this type of garden is. A wicking garden is... um... Uh, taking advantage of uh, something called capillarity. So it's so like if you have a paper towel and you, you dip it into some colored water and the, it sucks the water up into the paper towel, well, that's capillarity in action. And so you're using that to um, water your garden. And so what we did is we uh, bought uh, livestock troughs that you would like water your, your cows with if you had cows. Right and um, fill them up halfway with pea gravel, um, put landscape material on top of that pea gravel, uh, drill a hole right above that landscape material, and then backfill with uh, soil, and then put uh, mulch on top, and then uh, you plant your garden. And what you do is you then water, you can water just from the top until you see it overflow out that overflow weep hole. And, uh, and, and there you go. Um, the neat thing about, just, yeah, I'm you sorry. Just, then you and, just leave it and it, it wicks up and it, wick, it wicks up through the soil. Um, it's, so it's always watering, um, from, from that standpoint. Um, so, you know, as long as you're kind of keeping up with keeping the, um, reservoir in the bottom filled up or, or topping it off when you need to, um, you know, the, the cocktail friendly part comes because if you do it in these livestock tanks, you know, it's sitting up about two feet or so. Mm-hmm. So, so you don't have to bend over. Right. Um, and if you use enough mulch, you generally don't have to do too much weeding anyways. And then the topping off of the tank um, during normal season, it may be once a week that huh. we would wow. top off these containers. Huh. And then during the, you know, it's, August when it's, we had those hundred degree days, mm-hmm. um, twice a week, we'll do it on a Saturday morning. We'll do it on a Wednesday morning. Um, you know, when we had an in-ground garden before we're having to be out there in the morning and the evening to keep things alive. And the best part is the plants love it. Mm-hmm. We have a 12 foot tall tomato plants. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. we, we get, uh, uh, basil plants with uh, almost um, one foot diameter tree trunk size bases. I mean, it's Whoa. it's crazy with yeah. um, with not yeah. a lot of effort, um, and right. it's very water efficient because um, the water is coming from the bottom up instead of the top down, mm-hmm. and um, and so so you don't use as much water that way. And we use rainwater. 
Um, so we're not using any city water for these, these gardens. And we've got seven of these things in our backyard and wow. just, just can't, uh, can't sing the praises of them high enough. <laughs> so let me understand when you water them, are you, so you have a, a hole where the peel, pea gravel is, is that right? Or is, how do you yeah, get the just, water? In? Um, so you can just, um, you can just water from the top You know, I've kind of done oh, experiments okay. with the design. You know, the initial design, I had a, a vertical pipe down to the pea gravel, which you can do. And, and then just uh, run the water straight into that water reservoir. Or you can just, you know, lay your hose on the top in one place and let it just soak through until you then see the, the water come out of the, right. the drainage hole. And you got to have that drainage hole in. Otherwise, the whole thing fills up with water and your plants drown because there's too much right. water. Another type of Wiccan garden also uses galvanized stock tanks. They can be round or oval, depending on what you prefer and can accommodate. This design uses perforated PVC pipe cut into four or five inch lengths. These are placed on the bottom of the tank and support a perforated polypropylene screen that is cut to fit the tank. That creates the reservoir where the water will go. A drainage hole is cut into the side of the tank about four inches up from the bottom. The soil goes on top of the polypropylene screen. The plant roots will reach down into the reservoir for water. And this is what creates a self-watering, wicking garden bed that conserves water and saves time, as the gardener doesn't have to water as often. Janet Bradford of the Wimberley Garden Club describes another major benefit of using these tanks as your garden beds. All raised gardens are much easier to work. As a matter of fact, you can sit down, you can be in a wheelchair. Um, you, only, you, you don't have to put much effort into this garden. We're using galvanized tank, and what we are creating is a microcosm of nature where the trees around us, the flowers, the grass, wick up their nutrition and their water from the reservoirs that are beneath us, the precious reservoirs that are beneath us. So we uh, create a reservoir in the bottom. You may wonder how often you'll have to water a wicking garden bed. Janet Bradford, who has 10 such garden beds that she set up eight years ago, has a lot of experience in this. A big question, of course, is, well, how often do you have to put water in these tanks? Well, depends on the season, depends on what you're growing. Some vegetables and flowers take more water than others. Generally, in the hot weather, like what we have just endured recently, I think it was about a week and a half um, between when I would refill the reservoirs, maybe two weeks. In pleasant weather, in the fall, and the winter, you could probably go a month. You learn as you garden, and I'm not very scientific and I don't time myself very well. You can also kind of tell by your plants, if they get slightly droopy or if their color slightly changes, then you know you'd better refill the res reservoir. But you can certainly take a few days off. You can take a week off. You can go on a vacation. The Wicking Garden is a great option for all backyard gardeners. So give it serious consideration. 
Search online for Wicking Garden and you'll find lots of different designs. Now, for most of us, our gardens are spaces we create for ourselves, our families, and friends. But we often don't consider the needs of all the other species who inhabit those same spaces. My next guest, Benjamin Vogt, is a former professor of poetry who lives in eastern Nebraska, where he designs prairie gardens. He's an author and speaker, not just on landscape gardens, but also on garden ethics. His newest book is A New Garden Ethic, Cultivating Defiant Compassion for an Uncertain Future. Vogt challenges us to develop empathy for other species and to build gardens that demonstrate caring and compassion for all creatures and for the environment. That includes considering water use. In the United States, an estimated 32 million acres of land is covered by irrigated lawns, according to a study by NASA. That's more land than any other irrigated crop. Lawns are major water hogs. According to the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, landscape watering accounts for almost one-third of daily water use, totaling close to 9 billion gallons of drinking quality water every day. In some of the drier parts of the United States, outdoor water use largely for watering lawns is as high as 60% of daily water use and as much as half of that water is wasted due to evaporation, wind, or runoff. So, billions of gallons of drinking quality water to maintain lawns? Is that really a good use of a limited resource that's essential for humans and other creatures? My guest Benjamin Vogt doesn't think so. The gardens he designs use native grasses and wildflowers to replace large expanses of lawn. My question to vote on this issue will tell you how I feel about lawns. Uh, I happen to live in a subdivision where the gardens consist of lawns and some trees, maybe a few bushes close to a house. Uh, my own garden is different in that it's a permaculture garden in the making, and I use about, not 100%, but 90% native, um, including a wildflower flower meadow, uh, native trees and bushes. Um, and to me, lawns are anathema. Yet every subdivision has acres of manicured lawns. We just uh, visited our son in Memphis and went through um, subdivision after subdivision with literally miles of lawns. Um, and I know that you feel strongly about lawns, so I'm interested in what you have to say. I feel strongly about lawns. <laughs> That's putting it mildly. Um, yeah, it, it is depressing, isn't it, to drive through mm -hmm. these, these miles and miles of, of suburban su subdivisions and just see this monoculture. A monoculture, by its very definition, is not healthy. And then we go and we slather fertilizers and, and, and herbicides and pesticides all over it, which makes it even worse, especially when rainfall runs off of it into our storm drains and our ponds and our lakes and our rivers. Then we have these lawnmowers droning all the time, spewing out these toxic chemicals that uh, increase hypertension and, and lower sperm counts. So if you're a guy out there listening and you're trying to procreate, stop mowing your lawn, right? Uh, so, so yeah, we, 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 
and you know th- these these are dead zones. Uh, a lawn. I hear people argue a lot of time that well, lawn's better than concrete and asphalt, right? Because it is it it, it is working to clean the air. It, it's it is working to filter some water down into the soil, and you know that's just when I I flip out and run down the street ranting and we're waving my hands. <laughs> Because lawn roots only go down, really go down a couple of inches. Um, we keep lawns at, you know, two to four inches. If we're lucky, people mow it four, but everybody in my neighborhood probably mows at an inch and a half. So we do not have very long blades. So they can't possibly be doing that much good as far as cleaning the air and, and cooling the air. So yeah, these these lawns, I, I am definitely an enigma in my neighborhood where I can probably count the number of trees my neighbors have on, on one hand and the number of shrubs on two hands. And here I am with probably 2,000 plants in my front yard. I hope I've convinced you to rethink your lawn and consider how you might change it to be a meadow or prairie. You're listening to Mothering Earth. I'm Salwa Khan. We'll take a short break and be back before you know it. You're listening to Mothering Earth. I'm Salwa Khan, and we're continuing with a program focus on water and how to conserve this very precious and vital resource in outdoor spaces. Droughts and floods are regular features of weather and climate in all parts of the world. Droughts are painful events in many ways, but floods are also a serious problem. Floods result in loss of life and can cause massive destruction of houses, roads, schools, and other man-made structures. Floods can also do serious damage to trees, plants, wildlife, and to the land itself. There are many bad land management practices that magnify the effects of floods. These include adding more and more impermeable surfaces in the form of roads, parking lots, and other types of construction. It also includes destruction of natural areas such as forests, parklands, and perhaps even the land in your own yard. What if we could prevent some or most of the water that spills across our land during a flood from racing off and flooding the streets and areas around us? What if we can help our land become more like a sponge to soak up water and hold it for plants to use over time? Expanding the water-holding capacity of our soil is one important way to prevent or minimize the effects of flooding. My next guest is Ryan McGillicuddy, conservation biologist at Texas Parks and Wildlife. He works with people who want to learn about ways to mitigate flooding on their land. I asked him what landowners can do, especially along riparian areas near rivers, to make the land more like that sponge, to soak water up instead of allowing it to run off and create further flooding. So if I was having a discussion with a streamside landowner um, to really reiterate about what they can do to help create a landscape that can better withstand the effects of flooding, uh, while riparian areas themselves won't necessarily prevent flooding, but what they do is give the land the ability to withstand flood events uh, and recover from them a little bit quicker. And so that's what we know in ecology, a a term we call um, resiliency. So the ability to bounce back from a disturbance event. Um, So riparian areas, if there's healthy native vegetation on the landscape, if there's a diversity of vegetation on the landscape, um, if there's things like rock and wood to slow water down and allow it to infiltrate into the soil column, um, things like that, 
uh, having a diversity of age classes, so not just old mature trees, but also young trees um, growing up to replace those older ones, those landscapes are in a better position to recover faster from a flood event. So while they won't necessarily prevent all floods, um, they can recover much, much faster than something uh, that maybe just has uh, bare ground or um, you know, one one layer of turf grass and maybe some mature trees. Those are those uh, are not going to be able to withstand a flood um, as adequately as a diverse riparian area. All right. So, talk about why we want the water to soak in rather than just running off. Why is that important? Sure. Well, the the first thing is it helps our neighbors downstream. Um, you know, having intact floodplains that are undeveloped with um, you know healthy soils and vegetation, water can spread out onto that floodplain and then seep in, and so that reduces the effects and erosive forces of water downstream. Um, but additionally, when you allow that water to spread out onto the flood th- uh, floodplain and slowly seep in that recharges and, and, and saturates what we call these shallow alluvial aquifers. So the, uh, the soil right next to the creek or river is capable of storing an incredible amount of water. And when these floods, you know, not your huge 500 year event floods, but these, you know, one to two, mm-hmm. five, 10 year uh, flood events, when they spread out onto the floodplain, uh, that vegetation slows the water down. That water then infiltrates into these shallow alluvial aquifers. And then over time, over a period of days, weeks, months, it makes its way by gravity back towards the riverbed. And so it's actually feeding the base flow of mm-hmm. our rivers and adding water, keeping water in our rivers longer throughout the year so that uh, we've, we've get pools that persist longer. We get running water that persists longer. And so we tend to think of these um, intact, healthy, uh, vegetated riparian areas as like time release capsules that are holding on to the water for us through the dry times of the year. And that's good for uh, drinking water, that's good for fish, for wildlife, uh, for everything that depends on water. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, and also uh, you mentioned plants, uh, which you would uh, want to have along these riparian areas, um, because they are key in helping to mitigate the effects of floods. So uh, talk about the different types of plants and how they, uh, I guess, help prevent or or at least help in holding water so that it doesn't uh, result in a really uh, terrible flooding. Sure. Uh, you know, vegetation along the stream in, in what we call this riparian area is providing a number of key critical functions. Uh, in a flood event like we're talking about, it's doing a number of things. These native plants have incredibly uh, dense root systems that grow very deep. And so what happens is these roots go very, very deep and it almost is acting like rebar in concrete. The roots in the soil are like rebar in concrete. They're holding it all together. It's giving surface tension, um, you know, and it, it's almost like grappling it. So when you've got a mix of these diverse native plants, their roots are growing much deeper than a lot of our turf grasses or imported grasses that aren't adapted to these riparian areas. Um, so you've got the root systems just holding everything together. And when you've got a diversity of plants, their root systems are interlocking with each other. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing that's going on. But there's also, when you get uh, growth uh, above ground, when you get these erosive forces, those uh, long blades of grass and those smaller shrubs and the diversity of plants are folding over almost like a blanket from the top. Hmm. So they're folding over and protecting the soil. 
uh, from the top, just like the roots are protecting it and holding it in the bottom. So there's action going on uh, above and below ground. While McGillicuddy focuses on riparian areas, the same practices apply to any piece of land, including your yard. As McGillicuddy notes, turf grasses have shallow roots and so are not useful. The key to creating water-holding capacity in the soil is having a diverse array of native plants, including native grasses, with deep roots. The benefits include less flooding and less time spent on watering your yard. That translates to effective water conservation. My next guest is Peter Van Dyke, who is a restoration ecologist and heavy equipment operator who specializes in rehydrating landscapes. What does that mean? It means helping people learn how to increase their soil's capacity to hold water. Doing that turns your soil into a water bank, holding moisture so that you don't have to water as much. The most important thing that we talk about is soil fertility. So um, there's been numbers coming out from the NRCS recently that NRCS the is. National Resource Conservation Service. Okay. Um, it's a federal government institution, but um, they have figured out that for every one percent of organic matter in your soil, that holds around twenty-seven thousand gallons of water per acre. Wow. So, um, and just to give you some context on that. Uh, one inch of rain over an acre is about 27,000 gallons. So you could wow. sort of equate that to, you know, if you have 3% organic matter on your soil, then you're going to be able to absorb about three inches of rain um, and hold that as potential water storage in your soil. And, um, and so if you have 5% organic matter, you can take five inches of rain without runoff. Right. And um, so if you have 3% organic matter in your soil, that's 81,000 gallons of water storage potential versus 1% that's 27,000 gallons. Right. Most of the soils around here in central Texas are at about you know, 1% to 2% organic matter in the soils. Mm -hmm. And an average healthy soil uh, has a minimum of 5% organic okay. matter. Okay. So our soils are very depleted. Um, which is why it's so hard to grow stuff out here. And, um, and it just produces less valuable and nutrient-dense products whenever you have less organic matter in the soil. Right. So if you, don't, if you don't have plants growing, then you're not going to be increasing your soil organic matter. So, um, whenever so you, you don't want bare land. Right. So whenever you have green plants photosynthesizing, they take in sunlight, water, and carbon dioxide, and they do some pretty amazing stuff. They, they split the water molecule, and um, the oxygen is exhaled, and then they use those remaining hydrogens to um, create sugars. And that sugar is used to, um, uh, as food that they use to maintain their bodies. Right. And in the good times, they'll have excess. So that excess sugar literally drips through the root system of the plants, through the tip of the roots. And that's where you start to see under a microscope um, billions of microorganisms feasting on those sugars at the tips of the roots. 
And so what's happening is the plant is um, having this interaction with these microorganisms. They're getting um, nutrients and minerals that are vital to their survival that they cannot obtain on their own. And through that process and all that cycling, um, and the final digestion of all of that is through fungi, that creates humus, which holds a lot of water and is analogous to honey for plants. So bees mm. um, create honey and they store it for the winter as their long-term food source. Well, humus in the soil is very similar to that because the plants are using that as a long-term stable food source. Right. And um, that's a great analogy. I've never heard that before. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And so, so um, that can last in the soil for a thousand years. Yeah. So, really, the process of photosynthesis is creating like this crystallized solar energy in the soil. And it just so happens that it holds a lot of water. Um, And the more that we can encourage that system of symbiosis, the more stable your soils are going to be and holding more water. What you don't want in your landscape is bare soil. When rainwater or floodwater hits bare soil, you have runoff and soil erosion. Rainwater isn't something to get rid of. It's a precious gift that you want to hold on to. To do that, you need to increase the water-holding capacity of your soil by planting a wide diversity of native plants that have deep roots and by building up the amount of organic matter in your soil. Please tell people you know about this podcast, and thanks for listening. Until next time, this is Salwa Khan signing off for Mothering Earth, your source for sustainable living news.